wilting flower. She picks the flowers as soon as they start to bloom. I tell her they won't last. We put them in water. They light up the room. For one day, maybe two. The stems then droop. The petals rain down, creating a windowsill flower bed. Soon, a shriveled mess. I'm a wilting flower, losing petals every moment, hurting as I watch them fall. My stem is drooping, searching for some hidden strength. No water will steady me. My tears nourish no part. Will you pick me up too? Age was written and is narrated by Isabel Cook. Do enjoy. Age. Etched and weathered in every line, the polished face once so fine, is pitted and sagging with fallen chin, is wizened and wrinkled very thin, but beautifully sculptured on fine bones sit, with eyes bright and finely lit. It holds a thousand stories aged and worn, never unhappy, never forlorn. Bright as a button with mine to match, as tough as a tank with batten down hatch. She may be old and weather worn, but she smiles a lot, never shows her scorn. She finishes the crossword, but slower now, with wit and charm very much on show. Her mind lingers on as she sits still, there's more to do and she will fulfil. The last dance danced a while ago, she is heavy footed and very slow. She is a lifelong cherished character, like a delicate structure, easy to fracture. But her smile lights up any crowded room, like the sun lifting from the clouded gloom. For her, it's nearly the end of the day, but her presence will linger when she's gone away. End of the Line was written by Graham Emmett and is narrated by Kevin Daly. Do enjoy. Oily rags, kindling, shoveling coal, lighting the rags, watching it burn, lighting the kindling, shoveling coal through the small hatch closing, waiting for it to glow like a red-hot fiery inferno. Tapping the gauges, watching the needles climb slowly, open the hatch, shovel like mad, now we're ready, full steam ahead. The wheels they are spinning, sparks are flying, clouds of steam smoke rising, now we are moving. Peterborough, Darlington, York, pass in a kaleidoscope blur, not stopping until the border. We are covered in grime, black hands and faces, the day is done, no more steam, we have been replaced by diesel and electric now. Boy Racer was written by Sally Runham and is narrated by Roger Ems. Boy Racer. Zack put his foot on the accelerator to rev the engine and his own spirits, depressed at the loneliness of social isolation. The loud guttural thrust reverberated through the customised exhaust, boosting Zack's verve. An Audi, rebuilt after a serious accident, 
his car now boasted fashionable accessories of Zach's own design and admired by fellow YouTubers in Germany. He loved his vehicle's speed, but mainly that it captivated an audience drawn to him because of his daring and his need to show off. This lockdown was driving him stir-crazy, although he had to admit one advantage. He'd hit 150 miles an hour on a deserted stretch of the M11 last night, but with no witnesses, sadly, any bragging would be just hot air. Zach worked as an apprentice to a local engineer. He'd been laid off, but thankfully on full pay and only temporarily. The senior engineer was attempting to modify machines to make face masks and other protective gear. Then Zach would go back to work all hours to produce enough to fulfill the recently awarded government crisis contract. Zach figured he would be too exhausted to bob around the town centre on his souped up wheels, admired by other racers. The youngsters were monitored by the police, but if they practiced social distancing, they were generally left to their own devices. Some of his friends were too compliant or even secretly scared to venture out now though. No mates here tonight, or were locked down. Frustrated by rules, Zack sped away but soon realised all routes were blocked by police cars. He just wanted to drive for miles to race his car foot to the floor. Swerving around a bend on his way back to oh-so-boring home, he braked suddenly. A sight more lovely even than his Audi. Jules at the Grove Court retirement bungalows. Jules was his sort of girlfriend. Nothing settled, but neither hit on other people which suited them both. Jules was on furlough from her work and would qualify for the 80% pay rate soon. Not allowed to get another job, Jules was a community volunteer and took supplies of food or medicine to people in one of the bungalows. Jules was framed against the lit hallway with the front door ajar and someone clearly fit and active was with her. Eyes for Jules only at first, Zach realised the other person was a paramedic and they were wheeling a stretcher with a patient using breathing apparatus. He pulled over to the curb and approached on foot. Getting a better angle, he looked along the footpath and over the wall to the blue flashing light of the ambulance, parked as closely as possible. Jules spotted Zach and beckoned him over. He dashed across the lawns towards his friend but kept his distance. The paramedic spoke. Uh, Jules said you'd be able to help. It's an emergency and we need to waive social distancing and the other rules. She indicated indoors to where her paramedic colleague had collapsed with a heart attack, she explained. She'd stabilised him, but knew both he and her coronavirus patient, already on the stretcher, needed hospital care urgently. I'll travel in the back with them both, she explained as calmly as she could. It's their only chance. The dashboard phased Zach at first, but 
The basic controls were familiar. He tested the accelerator, uh, a bit sluggish compared with the Audi, but he could floor it and they wouldn't have to keep stopping for giveaway signs and traffic lights. And then there was the siren announcing his passage. Look at me, it seemed to say, satisfying his need for publicity. Jules shouldn't be in the cab either. A poorly paramedic with heart failure and a courageous frontline medic trying her utmost to save lives were all the encouragement he needed to go speedily but also caringly. But there they were, a team blasting throttle and siren to receive a design award for lightweight personal protective equipment that people now wore every time they left the safety of home. He could go as fast as he liked now, and whether what he was doing was legally above board, it was morally right. The police clocked the ambulance going at over a hundred miles an hour through Huntingdon Town Centre to the hospital, but took no action. They also waived prosecution for last night's speed fix along the M11, but put the scene on YouTube, pleasing Zach immensely. Funnily enough, thereafter, Zach never found speeding a fix at all, as other things mattered more. One experience produced far more adrenaline when the young engineer walked onto the stage at the Royal Albert Hall. In Sight of the Open Road was written by Neil Weeding and is narrated by Julie Stark. As he lay there, Sam opened his weary eyes. He clenched his hands against the dusty floor. The smell of musty hay was prevalent. He tried to understand where he was. He could not remember where he had ended up. Sam blinked and tried to focus. The blurry image of a barn door came into view. He still had no idea where he was. He tried to move, but he seemed to be glued to the spot. His mind was racing. Why was he here? He just couldn't remember. At that moment, a sharp pain came over him in his back and upper left leg. He tried to roll over onto his back. He soon realized that was a mistake. The searing pain shot through his body, pain he had never experienced before, excruciating and deliberating. As he lay on his side, desperately trying to make sense of his surroundings and situation he was now in, his right shoulder was bleeding. Sam moved his arm and looked at the injury. He knew what it was. A gunshot wound. He paused for a moment and realized the sudden horror of what had happened. His memory had returned. Images flashed in his mind. The noise of three gunshots, remembering the pain as the bullets pierced his skin and ended up in his back, <coughs> upper leg, and shoulder. The realization of being injured and left for dead set Sam into a panic. He could feel his heart racing. He had to try to calm down, reduce his adrenaline. He rested for a moment, looked up at the barn roof. He could see shards of light seeping through the cracks, lighting up sections of the interior. He could hear the crows on the roof making a scuffling noise as they clambered over the surface. A dark thought came over him. The vultures have already gathered. 
He knew that he had lost a lot of blood, and God knows how much strength he had left. More images came into his head. His memory was returning. The head wound was from a blunt instrument, administered from behind. He must have been bundled into the back seat, because he could remember looking up at the sky, not a cloud to be seen. He cried out. Christ Almighty! Someone had tried to murder him. He remembers hearing a noise behind him. He then remembered a man's voice. Well, Copper, you thought you were too clever. Getting too close to the truth will kill you. You're going to die. Say your prayers to God. Sam tried to remember more, holding on to life, his breathing becoming shallower. Images came into his mind as he recalled the final moments. As the sound of the pistol, the smoke from the barrel, the sheer horror at that moment, when the first bullet entered his shoulder, <coughs> he fell to the ground, face down. In a desperate act, Sam tried to reason with the man talking from the dark corner of the barn. Stop this! You don't have to kill me. The shadowy man replied. You are getting close to me, my past. You have to be silenced. Sam tried to turn over to try to get a look at him. Another gunshot was heard. <coughs> The second bullet entered his upper left leg. Another surge of pain. Sam screamed. The effect of the second bullet made him turn on his stomach again. He heard footsteps. The killer moved from the shadows. Closer, Sam heard his footsteps, and as he stood beside him, he noticed the boots, tanned leather with buckles. The killer raised the gun from his side and aimed at the back. You will die a lonely death. Your return to your hometown was a mistake. You should have stayed away. Speaking his last words to Sam, he felt the third, a final bullet. Penetrating his upper back, the force of the bullet was so much that the last thing Sam could remember, and as he refocused on the here and now, he imagined that was the moment he blacked out and left to die. Sam looked for an exit. The barn door was open a crack. He tried to muster up enough strength to lunge himself forward, crawling slowly and painfully toward the door. Sam struggled for breath. As he gasped, taking in as much air as he could, with each inhale of the air, he slowly moved forward, clasping the ground, desperate to get to the door. At that moment, he heard a vehicle approach. He shouted out, "Please help me!" But it was useless. There was no way in hell the driver would have heard him. In a last bid to reach the door, Sam lunged forward. His arm stretched out. He had reached the slight opening at the barn door. He tried to push it, but it was just not budging. Sam was exhausted. He only had so much fight in him. Sam shuffled round, and with the force of his good leg, he kicked at the door. After several attempts, the door opened sufficiently for Sam to crawl out. It was a hot and humid day, 
and he felt the sun beating down on his body. A post was nearby. He grabbed at it and managed to sit up, propping himself up against it. He took another breath and looked around for any sign of a car or truck. There was nothing coming. Not that he could see very much. His vision was very impaired at this point. Sam took a moment to recollect his thoughts. Sam muttered under his breath, God damn it, as the pain continued to writhe through his upper torso. Gotta keep awake. He could see the highway stretch out for miles in both directions, and just at that moment he remembered his tracker he had in a pouch attached to his belt. Sam reached for it to see if the gunman had spotted it. To his relief, the tracker was still in there. He took it out of the pouch and pressed the button. Headquarters in town would pick up the signal, and he would now be found. The question was, would they get to him in time? Playing Dress Up, written and read by Victoria Jane Clark. The silky swathes gather around and cascade across the ground. Like a rolling river, it tumbles out like a dream. I'm floating in joy and playing in sequins. The sunlight sparkles and shines stars all over the walls in reflection off of the glossy discs, but then I hear her calls. The sounds of footsteps marching up the stairs, but I'm stuck in the dress and tangling in the textile. I hold my breath and hear the footsteps heading away. A sigh of relief, I continue to play. I find some makeup, mascara and lipstick, and play with nail varnish too. I start to transform myself into a princess, a model, a bride. I twirl around and jump on the bed, feeling beautiful inside. Blasting my hair with the heat of the dryer, I didn't hear the door open. Oh dear. Mum stepped in and cried out loud, What have you done to my dress? I fell off of my cloud. I was tangled and torn and covered in colours. I had messed up her dress and her makeup to boot. Oh dear, I thought. Oh gosh, oh no. I looked at Mum's face and saw the anger glow. Then she sat down next to me and started giggling. She threw around some sequins and said, It's only a dress. We watched the sequins sparkle and dance, so together we did the same. Why Spring Flowers Dance was written and narrated by Jean Fairburn and is all about the regeneration of flora and fauna. And why do spring flowers dance? The answer is given. Snow-whitened petals packed tightly together, centers curled inwards like babies' closed fists. In spring's warmer weather, they wake and dance measures and cling to their neighbors to beg for the favor of dancing gay gardens for fun. Stems locked together as one, sweeping and swaying, swirling and twirling, dancing and spinning around, roots stuck fast in the ground. Whirls and crowns circlets and cohorts of colour, flowers in yellow, pink, violet and blue. Squashed tightly they jostle, stretch sideways they squabble, struggle for more space, to be first to turn full face, to dawn's eastern skyline, announcing it's springtime, when warm rays of sunlight drive winter to full flight, herald a spring prayer and trumpet a fanfare for flowers who dance in the sun celebrating the race they have won. 
Now, but pissy blooms, wilted and crushed flat, stems broken, shredded and snapped, who lie in spent pollen and die, on compost heaps covered with flies, casualties of life's cruel race, to first feel the sun on their face. Red patterned bloodstains scar concrete grey pathways, in fume-laden cities and rough neighbourhoods, here flowers perfume stale air, and dance to give back the colour and form to a world in which hope is reborn. Chocolate Cake Heaven, written by Helen O'Mahony and narrated by Sue Rodwell-Smith. The usual Friday night meeting was underway and everyone had settled down to concentrate on the writing exercise. Occasionally, in between scribbling, members of the group would pause to nab a piece of the delicious fudgy chocolate cake kindly provided by Jess, which they all firmly believed helped the creative process to manifest itself in inspirational thought. Silence blanketed the usually trashing members, that is, apart from the faint sound of pens scratching on paper, a contented munching from the grazers and the clunk of mugs being set down on the table. Wow! This is definitely your best cake yet, exclaimed Tricia. What's the secret? Ah, oh, well, a lifetime of practice, perhaps, quipped Jess. There were a few chuckles and appreciative nods. Then writing resumed along with the familiar scratching sounds of biros on paper. All of a sudden, there was a thud outside the door, which made everyone jump. I thought we had the hall to ourselves tonight, said Angie in a nervous voice. The handle of the door began to rattle and the door creaked open agonisingly slowly. Everyone stared in that direction, wondering what was going to come through it. Some had even got to their feet and were ready to run. In the doorway appeared an elderly woman with a mop and bucket. There was a sigh of relief all round and everyone sat down to continue their writing exercise. The old woman nonchalantly began to clean the floor with long sweeping strokes. Uh, Excuse me, we're having a meeting in here, Brenda called over to her. The woman gave no sign of having heard her and carried on mopping, apparently engrossed in her work, only stopping now and again to praise her progress. Do you think she's deaf? someone suggested. But she hasn't even looked at us, added Brenda. As they watched, all writing suspended. The old woman continued covering the floor with her soapy mop in a rhythmic fashion, seemingly in a world of her own and apparently oblivious to all of them. There was something very unnerving about the unseeing eyes of the woman and the fact that she was coming closer and closer to their table without acknowledging their presence. That woman is giving me the heebie-jeebies, whispered Jess, as the very wet mop began to slosh around her feet and bob up and down under the table. Someone else, however began to get angry and confronted her. Hey, do you mind? We're in the middle of something here. How rude! Strangely, there was still no response from the old woman. Some of the group began to look at each other with quizzical expressions on their faces. One woman observed that they hadn't actually felt her mop as it splashed over their feet. By now, everyone in the group was feeling decidedly spooked and all attempts to attract the old woman's attention were seemingly pointless. I don't remember seeing a cleaner coming in here before, and certainly not while our meetings are taking place, stated John. It gives me the creeps to say this, but we are definitely looking at a ghost, he added. What do we do now? squeaked Eleanor, 
Could she harm us? Do you think we're in danger? Maybe we should get out of here and tell someone. She finished. Yes, maybe we should. But who do we report it to? People will think we're crazy. Maybe a priest. They can do exorcisms and get rid of evil spirits. Remember that film? Look, she's back down by the door again. Do you think she's leaving? Well, if she doesn't, I certainly am," said Trisha, having knocked over her tea in a nervous rush to get out of the room. Suddenly, there was a sharp snap, and the lights went out, plunging the room into pitch blackness. "Let's get out of here now!" shouted someone. There was a crash of chairs being knocked over, and the whoosh of papers flying around as they all rushed for the door. Lily checked the keys, which had been safely handed back to her, and then double-checked them as she always did, relying on the dim light of her doorway. So, how did you get on tonight? Everything all right down there? There was a slight hesitation. Edna pondered what to say to her. Yes, every, everything was fine. The floors are spotless. You could eat your dinner off them now. But there was something. I'm not sure how to say this. I had this very strange feeling of being watched. And another thing, I got the strongest smell of chocolate cake in the side hall. Couldn't figure it out. Maybe a peckish ghost, eh? Joked Lily. Edna left Lily still chuckling as she walked back down Lily's garden path. All the same, she made up her mind that next time she cleaned the village hall, she would ask Arthur to come with her.